This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Let's start, if you don't mind, with your background. So I'm a Jewish American. I grew up in Michigan, going to Jewish schools and Jewish summer camps uh, and Jewish youth groups and traveled to Israel with my Jewish youth group in high school. And that got me super interested in Israel. And one next thing you know, 10 years later, I'm doing a PhD in Palestinian history. And uh, over the past few years, I've, I've launched a newsletter about Palestine. Um, I tweet a lot about Palestine. I speak a lot about Palestine. My research is all about the origins and development of a Palestinian identity in the late Ottoman period, as well as a history of the idea of Palestine. Like, when did people actually use the word Palestine in history? Um, uh, for what reasons? Um, uh, in which time periods? And so I, I would say, generally speaking, the thing I've been doing the most of in the past couple of years is trying to translate academic research, uh, as well as reports coming out of the NGOs, these very dense 500-page PDFs, trying to repackage that and repurpose that and make it more accessible for broader audiences. Because I do think there is a tremendous amount of interest in Israel-Palestine history specifically to understand what is happening today, to understand what led to October 7th. You need to understand the history and not just the past five or 10 or 15 years of history, but really the past 140 years of history. Because so much of what we are, are, are learning about today has deep, deep roots. Um, and so that, that's really the thing I've been so focused on over the past few years is trying to make that academic research on Palestinian history, on the history of the Israel-Palestine question, more accessible to broader audiences. You mentioned 140 years. A lot of pushback will occur immediately saying, no, we have to go back thousands of years. Well, the question I would ask you in response would be, were Israelis and Palestinians killing each other thousands of years ago? Were they killing each other 500 years ago? Were they killing each other 200 years ago? The answer to all those questions is no. So when I go back and I want to understand the origins of the conflict itself, that is to say, the origins of when Palestinians and when Israelis started killing each other, that conflict dates to about, let's say, the 1880s. You might say 1870s. If you really want to, uh, you know, go back to the 1860s or 50s, fine. Uh, but you know, if you want to go back much further than that, you're now entering the realm of propaganda. That's the realm of Zionist propaganda or Palestinian propaganda for that matter, which is to say that uh, Palestinian or Israeli uh, or Jewish or other propagandists will go back in time to a point that is convenient for their narrative. We'll go back in time to a point where they claim their history starts in that place. Well, the problem with going back to when Jews claim they uh, have a history beginning in Palestine or when Palestinians claim they have a history beginning in Palestine, now you're embracing the propagandists rather than the historian's version of the history of the conflict. But if you want to leave the propaganda aside and just focus on the conflict itself, when did Israelis and Palestinians, or before Israelis, they were Zionists, or before Palestinians, let's say they were Arabs. Um, but when did Arabs and Zionists first start to kill each other, to my mind, that is the most sensible, the most neutral starting point to understand the origins of the conflict. You could really start the story of October 7th in, you could start it in 2007 when Hamas took power in the Gaza Strip, um, and, and after which point Israel imposed a land, sea, and air blockade. Um, in other words, the, the moment when Israel waged a war on all two million people in Gaza from, for every minute of every, uh, of every hour of every day uh, of every year for the past 16 years, Israel has been waging an, an unrelenting uh, war on the civilian population of Gaza. So in my mind, that is the most sensible place to start the story. If you want to go back further than that, you could start uh, with uh, the, the, the origins of Hamas, which you could date to, say, 1987-88. Um, but even to understand the origins of Hamas, you have to understand the first 20 years of Israeli military occupation, which began in 1967. And really, to, to understand the deep roots of the, the rise of Hamas, you probably have to go all the way back to 48, which is when all these Palestinians who founded Hamas uh, were made into refugees and pushed into Gaza in the first place. And, and so you could, you could really start in 48, you could start in 67, uh, you could start in 87, or you could start in 2007, depending on how far back into history you want to go. Uh, as it relates to October 7th, the, the key things to know about the 48 war would be number one, 
something like two-thirds of the entire uh, population, Arab population of Palestine, became refugees, were made refugees during that war, including, by the way, uh, the founders of Hamas themselves. Um, right? So uh, we're, we're talking... Um, uh, uh, the, the the founder of Hamas, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, he is from a village in what became Israel. And during that 1948 war, when Palestinian Arabs and Jewish Zionists fought uh, a war over Palestine, um, the Zionist forces and then the Israeli forces, they expelled something like 750,000 Palestinians uh, from Palestine. Um, many of them, about 200,000 of them, became refugees in Gaza. Um, and so if you even, you, you've probably heard many times already, but you know, 75% of the people currently living in Gaza today are either themselves refugees or descendants of those refu of those 200,000 refugees that were made refugees during, uh, the 1948 war. Um, so that, that, that's really sort of the starting point to understand actually that the people who founded Hamas were made refugees by Israel during that war. Um, the, the second maybe thing we're saying about that war was that in, in the immediate aftermath of the 1948 war, from 19, uh, roughly from the end of 1948 until 1949-1950, so for about a year and a half, two years, after the, uh, uh, the end of the war, after the guns fell silent in 1948, you had many tens of thousands of Palestinians trying to return to their homes after the war to see family, to recover property, to harvest crops. And in just the, that first two years, from end of 48 until 1950, the Israeli military had a shoot-to-kill policy. Uh, anyone, any of these refugees trying to return to their homes were shot and killed. And Israel killed more than 1,000 uh, Palestinian uh, unarmed refugees during that first two years. And then, just to, to, to continue the story forward, in 1956, Israel had, uh, um, and so after Israel uh, was slaughtering these Palestinian refugees uh, returning home, many Palestinians picked up arms and started to fight back. Um, and, and those Palestinians became known as, known as the Fedayeen. And then, in, in, and so they started carrying out cross-border raids against uh, Israeli towns um, in the years after 1950. And in 1956, Israel had the brilliant idea of, quote-unquote, eradicating uh, Palestinian violent military resistance coming out of the Gaza Strip, and and so they entered the and so they they entered the Gaza Strip in October 1956 as part of uh, what I would call a neo-colonial war, the Suez Crisis, as it's known. They occupied Gaza for six months, from October 56 until uh, March 1957, and in November uh, 1956 they entered Khan Yunis. November 3rd, they went from door to door. They grabbed every 15-year-old male, every male above the age of 15 lined them up in the city uh, center of Khan Yunis and slaughtered them. Uh, it was a massacre. Abdul Aziz Rantisi, one of the co-founders of Hamas, two decades later, he was an eight-year-old boy at the time living in the Khan Yunis uh, camp. He bore witness to the events of, uh, of November 1956. And so I think it's worth keeping in mind, or at least perhaps worth asking ourselves, how many eight-year-old children today uh, in Gaza are witnessing the atrocities that are taking place on an order of maybe uh, uh, two to three orders of magnitude more ferocious and more violent and more deadly than the 1956 massacre? Um, but that, let's just put a pin in that and, and, and continue forward, right? So, um, you know, as we said, 48 is really the starting point. But really to understand kind of the rise of Hamas, I think you have to go back to 67, when Israel uh, um, occupied Gaza, not for six months, but for the past 56 years. It occupied, of course, not just Gaza, but also the West Bank. And since, and during its first 20 years of military occupation, from 67 to 87, Israel denied uh, Palestinians basic political rights. Uh, Palestinians are now being controlled by the Israeli military. They do not have a right to vote for the, the government that controls their lives. They're not allowed to wave a Palestinian flag. They're not allowed uh, allowed uh, to uh, to paint a painting using green, black, red, and white, um, because of course that would be uh, violent and dangerous. Um, and in fact, one a Palestinian by the name of Fatih Raban sat six months in, a, in an Israeli prison in 1982 for using those colors in a painting, right? So we're talking about 20 years of brutal military occupation in which Israel is killing on average 32 Palestinians every year for 20 years, long before there are any terrorist organizations based in the West Bank or Gaza. Um, Israel is imposing uh, um, daily, uh, uh, you know, physically assaulting Palestinians at checkpoints. Uh, Israel is confiscating large swaths of land uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, and so we're talking about a policy, uh, a, a brutal military occupation. They're, they're 
detaining and deporting any Palestinian who resists uh, Israeli rule. So between 67 and 87, Israel deports uh, thousands of Palestinians to outside uh, of the territories. Um, and of course, uh, after 20 years of this occupation, we get a revolt. We get an uprising in which Palestinians, primarily using nonviolent means, rise up um, and reject the state of, 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 of subjugation in which they're living. And so, uh, and during the first year of that revolt, um, from late 87 until late 88, Israel enters Gaza and slaughters 142 Palestinians in Gaza and suffers zero casualties in response because it's basically a nonviolent revolt. It's primarily Palestinian youth throwing stones at Israeli tanks. And lo and behold, during that same year, when Israel slaughters all these Palestinians, um, that's exactly the same year during which Hamas uh, transitions from uh, a charity organization to a militant resistance group. And so that is really, I think, to really understand the origins of October 7th, you got to go back to the first intifada, the first uprising, during which time Hamas really makes that transition. Um, and and it's, it's a much more gradual transition than most people realize. And, 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 and I would first uh, start off by saying it didn't have to end the way it ended. Hamas made peace overtures to Israel in the months leading up to August 1988 when it first adopted its infamous charter during which it calls in which it calls for an Islamic state over all of Palestine and in which it, it, it declares the, the Jews the enemies of the Palestinian people. And so um, just to point out a few of these meetings that have been almost completely forgotten, even by historians, even by specialists, not to mention the general public, you have in March 1988, so we're talking four or five months before Hamas embraced its violent charter, you have, um, you have Hamas leaders, Mahmoud al-Zahar, uh, go to Tel Aviv, meet with then Foreign Minister Shiron Paris, and, and, and try to open up a, a channel, a negotiation channel uh, for peace. And then on June 1st, 1988, Mahmoud al-Zahar goes back uh, to Tel Aviv and presents a document uh, to then-Defense Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin, in which he says, if Israel declares its intention to withdraw from the uh, Palestinian-occupied territories, it doesn't even have to withdraw, it just has to declare its intent to withdraw. And it allows a UN a peacekeeping force or some other third party, uh, th some other neutral third party, uh, to uh, take over uh, the territories, and, and then if it allows Palestinians to elect their own representatives without any Israeli inter interference, we're open to peace. But of course, that, fell, uh, uh, that peace offer fell on deaf ears. Israel had no intention of withdrawing from the occupied territories. In fact, to the contrary, over the previous six years, from 1982 to 1988, uh, the Israeli uh, government tripled its settler population in the occupied territories. It was in the process of dramatically expanding its control of the occupied territories um, in strategic locations that it wanted to maintain permanent military presence in. Um, so those peace offers fell on deaf ears. Hamas instead embraces violence. And, and it's, but, but it's a very gradual embrace. And during its first, I would say, six years, from 1988 to 1994, the majority of Hamas attacks are against Israeli military targets. And that's, by the way, the reason that the United States government doesn't even put Hamas on the terrorist watch list until 1996, right? So it's a very gradual transition during which first Hamas uh, starts to target Israeli military targets. Um, and then after Baruch Goldstein, uh, an American from Brooklyn, enters the Ibrahimi Mosque and slaughters 29 Palestinian worshipers during Ramadan, that is when Hamas really uh, becomes radicalized and starts to carry out all of these gruesome attacks on Israeli civilians in buses and cafes for the next, call it eight or nine years from 1994 until uh, 2004 or five. Yeah, so so that's really the most gruesomely violent period is, I would say, um, uh, not, really not until 2000. I mean, even, even for the next six years, Hamas is carrying out a dozen, two dozen attacks, killing about 150 Israelis from 94 to 2000, um, during which time, of course, Israel is imposing mass lockdowns, locking down Palestinians in place, uh, you know, imposing checkpoints, preventing uh, Palestinian freedom of movement. Um, and those periods, the most intense periods uh, in 95 and 96, when Israel locks down Gaza and the West Bank, we're talking for months and months at a time, uh, that leads to 70% unemployment rate in Gaza during peak lockdowns. And in the West Bank, it, it results in about 50% unemployment, again, during periods of peak lockdowns in 95, 96, and 97. And this, of course, is during the period in which Israel is supposed 
supposed to be building trust with the Palestinians, right? It's during the Oslo period when the Israelis are supposed to be gradually transferring over control of certain cantons within the West Bank and Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. Um, and it's precisely during this time when and Israel is actually eroding trust by crushing the Palestinian economy, leading the Palestinian GDP per capita to decline by 33% uh, during this period. And then um, the, the negotiations break down in 2000. Uh, happy to get into that if you're curious. But, 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 but I mean, that, that's a whole nother conversation. But basically, um, after uh, Ariel Sharon takes this very provocative visit uh, on the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, what the Israelis call the Temple Mount, um, during which he's essentially asserting sovereignty over the holiest uh, site to Palestinian Muslims, the third holiest site in all of Islam. This leads to protests. In the next day, Israel kills, I believe, three Palestinian children. This is September 2000. And then over the course of the next three weeks, um, Israeli military uh, personnel uh, shoot and kill 14 Palestinian children um, without having really experience any casualties themselves. And that, of course, unleashes Hamas's fury again. And over the course of the next five years, really from 2000 to 2005, Hamas, as well as Islamic Jihad, as well as Fatah, um, you know, they have a military wing as well. But all of these Palestinian armed groups start to carry out um, dozens, if not hundreds, of, of, of attacks on Israeli civilians and kill more than 1,000 Israeli civilians from 2000 to 2005. And Israel, of course, does what it always does, which is it responds with disproportionate violence and kills 3,000 Palestinians during that same time period. Um, and that kind of brings us to the 2006 January elections that were, by the way, encouraged um, by George Bush at the time. Right? He, he, he tells the Palestinians, you know, democracy, rah, rah. We, uh, he was the one that actually pushed the Palestinians to hold elections. Um, Palestinians hold elections, uh, legislative elections, and, um, and, and Hamas wins. And this is, of course, great uh, surprise to everyone, including the United States. And so they, of course, supported democracy before the election. But when they didn't like the result, uh, they opposed democracy. And in fact, what they do in, um, in, together in collaboration with Israel is they arm uh, Mahmoud Dahlan, uh, who is a the Palestinian uh, Fatah, a military commander in Gaza, they provide him arms and provide him support and tell him, you know, basically go kill all the Hamas people, go arrest all the Hamas militants, um, and that uh, leads to basically a civil war, uh, is what I would describe it, in Gaza in June 2007, during which, guess what, Hamas comes out on top again. And so Hamas is now in charge of Gaza uh, beginning in June 2007, which is when Israel imposes its land, uh, sea, and air blockade uh, over the Gaza Strip, um, which is, of course, illegal under international law because the stated goal of the blockade was to punish uh, the people of Gaza for having elected Hamas. And, of course, imposing a blockade on two million civilians is illegal because it is imposing collective punishment on a civilian population, which, of course, is illegal. And, I mean, we can get into the details uh, 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 of that um, blockade, but it has been uh, had an absolutely catastrophic uh, impact on all two million people in Gaza, right? You know, you've had unemployment rates fluctuate from uh, 40 to 60 percent on average over the past 16 years. Um, you, you had almost no one allowed to leave Gaza over the past 16 years. You're talking children um, born and raised in, an, in, in essentially an open-air prison um, in which they have no employment opportunities. Right Today, the youth unemployment rate is about 60-70%. Um, you know, today, uh, sorry, not today, but you know, on the eve of October 7th, um, roughly 50% of households in Gaza they had to make sacrifices on uh, th their health, uh, uh, you know, healthcare, utility bills, just to be able to put enough food on the table. 80% of Palestinians in Gaza, again, this, these are all uh, uh, data points uh, on the eve uh, of October 7th, so before October 7th. Obviously, um, everything has, has gotten um, dramatically worse since then. Uh, but on the eve of, uh, of October 7th, 80% of households in Gaza were dependent on food aid. Right, like families don't have enough uh, money just to be able to put enough food on the table. Um, you know, ninety-seven percent of the water in Gaza is undrinkable. Um, so when you turn on a faucet, in, and this again, this is before October seventh, of course, when you turn on a faucet in Gaza City or in Khan Yunis or in Rafah, it's salty water that comes out. Um, so Palestinians have to spend a huge amount of their uh, budget just on you know uh, uh, um, bottled water, getting safe drinking water. 
Um, it's a catastrophic situation in which Palestinians don't even have enough electricity to survive on. They, of course, Israel controls electricity, um, and so roughly uh, the, the single operating power plant in Gaza prior to October 7th had only 50% the amount of electricity they needed, um, which has, again, disastrous consequences on every sector. Uh, 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 of the economy of Gaza. Of course, it has dramatic consequences on the health sector. Um, in 2022 alone, about 20,000 Palestinians were denied exit permits uh, to leave Gaza uh, for medical reasons, right? Because, you know, you have 2 million people. That you don't have proper medical uh, uh, care in Gaza. You can't perform many operations. There's many things that cannot be done in Gaza owing to the blockade. And so you get tens of thousands of Palestinians applying for these exit permits to get medical treatment in Egypt or in the West Bank or, or in Israel proper. And in 2022 alone, 20,000 Palestinians were denied exit permits. And, and, just, and, and we know there are many documented cases, many uh, dozens of Palestinians, if not hundreds, if not thousands of Palestinians die every year because they cannot get access to preventable health care um, just to survive. And in one case, Fatima al-Masri, a two-year-old Palestinian girl, was denied an exit permit uh, to receive life-saving cha- life, uh, uh, um, medical treatment, and she died uh, as a result of that. And, and she's, she's uh, of course, not a unique case. We know of many, many other cases like her. Um, so we're, we were talking about a situation in which, you know, basically the people have no hope, um, they have not enough food to live off of. They do not have fresh water. There is not adequate medical care. They experience daily blackouts ranging from 2 to 12 hours every day. They live in an open-air prison. They have to forego utility bills. They, they do not uh, uh, have enough uh, money uh, to access a proper health care or even put enough food on the table. Um, and all that was before October 7th. Um, you know, I mean, and we could talk about the five wars that Israel has waged on Gaza. So um, from 2006, Six, seven, when Israel imposed its blockade on Gaza, uh, to October 6, 2023, um, Israel waged five wars on Gaza, during which it killed 3,500 Palestinian civilians. We're not talking about militants, we're talking about Palestinian civilians. And in every one of those five wars, in 2008, in 2012, uh, in 2014, in 2018-19, again, and again in 2021, Human rights organizations like the UN, like Amnesty International, and like Human Rights Watch have documented cases in which Israel intentionally targeted civilians. Uh, just to cite a few of those examples, okay, in 2008, the Goldstone Report, they conducted um, investigations on 11 strikes during which Israel killed uh, innocent civilians. And in 10 out of the 11 strikes... So more than 90% of the strikes on Gaza in the 2008-2009 war, um, uh, the, the Goldstone Report, which is a UN uh, uh, report, found that there were no justifiable military targets. In other words, the goal of the 2008-2009 Israeli war on the people of Gaza was to terrorize the civilian population of Gaza. That was the goal. That was the stated goal um, of that operation. And, and, and basically every war um, in varying degrees one, uh, has, has, had, has more or less, Israel has more or less done the same thing. In, in 2014, something like 40% of the strikes were targeting Israel, uh, Palestinian civilians where no military target was identified. The estimate in the 2021 war was 70% of the strikes had no justifiable military target. And in the 2018 war that many people don't call a war, but it killed more people than the 2012 war, which everyone calls a war, so I'm not sure why that's not even called a war. But in the 2018 war, um, during which Gazans peacefully marched towards the wall, um, protesting against the siege, uh, protesting uh, uh, for the right of return, Israel slaughtered 250 Palestinians over the course of a year. And on, on one day alone, on May 14, 2018, the Israeli army uh, slaughtered 60 Palestinians on a single day. It was a massacre. It was Israeli snipers literally gunning down Palestinians, Palestinian medics, Palestinians wearing press vests. It didn't matter. If you were a Palestinian and you were protesting uh, uh, peacefully, you were shot and killed. They, they injured 6,000 people with life-changing wounds. Again, and how many Israeli uh, um, uh, soldiers were killed in response? Zero. It was a massacre. And on the same day that Israel slaughtered 60 Palestinians in Gaza, you had an American delegation in Jerusalem celebrating 
Israel's capital of Jerusalem. The American embassy moved from, from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. And it was on May 14th, that same day, that the American government, together with Israel, celebrated... Yeah, Donald Trump. Donald Trump celebrating Israel's mm. illegal annexation uh, of East Jerusalem on the same day that Israel is slaughtering uh, defenseless Palestinian protesters. And, and that kind of brings us up to, to, to um, October 7th, um, which obviously, you know, we're talking about a scale uh, of humanitarian a catastrophe far, far greater, perhaps two to three orders of magnitude greater destruction and death and disability and despair than anything we've ever seen in the 140-year history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. What is Palestine? <laughs> Palestine is... Uh, it's a place. It's um, it's located in the exact same place as Israel. So let, let's talk about these words very briefly, right? So um, between 1920 and 1948, uh, the British government established a British mandate for Palestine. That was the name of the country. Um, of course, that mandate for Palestine was imposed against the political will of the of 85% of the people of Palestine who said... Um, how about democracy? How about just let us vote for our own representatives? And the British were like, no, nah, we're more into like colonialism and colonial domination. So, um, sorry. Um, so, so the, the name of the country for those 28 years was, was Palestine. Um, and it was uncontroversial by the way, you know, the Jews themselves called the place Palestine. The Zionists called the place Palestine. Um, it was an uncontroversial name. That was the name of the country. Okay. Um, and then uh, in, in, in English, right? In Hebrew, of course, the Jews called the place Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Um, and the reason they called it the land of Israel in Hebrew rather than Palestine um, is because uh, Hebrew had been a dead language for 2,000 years, right? So Hebrew was an ancient language spoken by the ancient Israelites more than 2,000 years ago, um, but already from the time uh, uh, of the uh, of the when the Romans, um, you know, uh, uh, destroyed the uh, the uh, the Bar Kokhva revolt in in, in 140 CE, um, even by that point, the name um, you know the name Israel had uh, uh, was long gone, was not even being used at that time. The Jews uh, of the first second century BC called it Judea. So basically, Israel had 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 been had fallen out of use, and 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 the Hebrew language um, was no longer a spoken language. Um, and so for 2,000 years, Hebrew was used as a written language, and it was a kind of lingua franca uh, for the Jewish people for, for uh, written purposes. Uh, uh, for, uh, you know, when, when, when a Jew in Spain or in Morocco or in Iraq um, would, 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 would write, um, say, um, a commentary on the Bible, or they would write a commentary on the Mishnah or the, or, or the Talmud, they would oftentimes be writing in Hebrew. Um, it was a written language, so it survived as a written language. Um, and for that reason, it didn't embrace much of the geographical lexicon. Um, uh, you know, um, it basically, you know, it, it wasn't impacted by the changes, um, the colloquial changes that had, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that were taking place over the course of those intervening 2,000 years. So in spoken language, um, you know, Jews around the world were calling the place Palestine in the 18th and 19th century. But the written language never embraced, never adopted um, those, those new, new words, especially Palestine. And so even in Hebrew literature, if you read Hebrew writings uh, by uh, Jewish uh, scholars and rabbis in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, they're not calling the place Palestine. They're calling the place Eretz Israel. So in Hebrew, um, the, 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 the phrase Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, is preserved. And so then when, uh, in the late 19th century, um, when these Zionists are reviving the Hebrew language, um, the, you know, they, the, the word Palestine had never been embraced in Hebrew. And so they're continuing to call the place Eretz Israel in Hebrew um, really throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and so basically you have these two words, of Palestine, which is being used in English and French and all the Western languages, um, and then you have, you know, of course, including Arabic and Persian and Ottoman Turkish, it's being called, you know, Palestine in Arabic or Philistine in Ottoman Turkish, uh, but it, you know, so that's the name in uh, in Arabic and Turkish and, and and English and German is Palestine, but in Hebrew the name is the land of Israel, and so then when uh, Jews realize they actually want to embrace Hebrew, that Hebrew is the national language of the Jewish people, and we want to revive this 
this Hebrew language, great. Um, they revive Israel along with that name. So now you have two competing names to describe exactly the same place. And then it really beginning when, uh, in 1948, when Israel establishes a state in the land of Israel. Um, you know, basically, there's this war that is waged on the word Palestine because the word Palestine is the name used by uh, the Palestinians, by the Arabs. And so because of the national conflict, um, because they um, don't want people to call the place Palestine, they don't want the Palestinians to call themselves Palestinians uh, th- th- because, of course, it's the same place, and th- but they want to establish a Jewish state I- I- in that land. There's now a war being waged on the word Palestine, and that war really, you could say, uh, develops in earnest um, in the 1960s um, and has, has been continually waged by Israel and its apologists and its supporters abroad. That is to say, um, this place is not called Palestine. And even to this day, you know, if you tell a Jew or an Israel, if you just, just call the country Palestine, it raises the ire of, of Jews and of Israelis and of Israel supporters. They don't, you, they don't want you to call that word, uh, use the word Palestine. Um, and so Palestine is a place, it's the same place as the land of Israel, it's just a different name for it, um, that is used, that has been used by the native inhabitants. And that's the reason uh, why there is, is, is so much controversy around it, it's because Israel and its supporters have wanted you to think that it's a controversial word. Oh my God, Palestine! Even though they themselves use the word for many decades, if not many centuries, and even though it has continually been the word used by Palestine's uh, Palestinian uh, uh, inhabitants as the name of the country i mean it sounds like a ridiculous question but i had a conversation a few days ago with somebody who was saying well it's a it's a recognized country and i said what well, is it because the united states doesn't recognize it as a country i don't see it on a map yeah i mean um you know palestine uh i, I would say these days has oftentimes become synonymous with the occupied palestinian territories Right, so you know they, the, the territories that Israel occupied in, in 1967 um, now have become conflated with the word Palestine, in part because Mahmoud Abbas, I believe, was it 2012 or 2013, he declared Palestine a state. Right, he said, you know, um, it was an, it was a UN General Assembly resolution, I believe, um, that that may have even uh, uh, I think voted in support of recognizing the state of Palestine, um, in reference to the occupied Palestinian territories of Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. Um, so now, you know, the, the word continues to evolve in its usage. Um, and now you might say that Palestine has two, at least two different meanings. One is, say, all of uh, quote-unquote historic Palestine, British mandatory Palestine, which is today everything between the river and the sea, right? Israel proper, the West Bank and Gaza all together, that that's Palestine. But then it now has a second meeting as well, which is just the, you know, the, uh, the occupied territories of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. What is Zionism? So Zionism is the belief that um, the Jewish people uh, have self-determination rights in the land of Israel-Palestine. That's the most simplistic definition, um, is to say that the Jewish people um, uh, have a right to statehood, to political sovereignty in Israel-Palestine. Um, that, that, I think that's the most simple defi- definition and the most inclusive definition. Um, of course, there are many strains of Zionism. There's political Zionism, religious Zionism, cultural Zionism. But I think all Zionisms would agree on that one point. The problem with um, Zionism is that, and, and the problem with establishing a Jewish state, is that Palestine is majority non-Jewish, right? And has been majority non-Jewish uh, for, for the entirety of the past 140 years. In the 1920s, I mean, going back to the 1880s, when Zionists first came up with the idea of establishing a Jewish state in Palestine, uh, Palestine was 90-plus percent non-Jewish. And then in, even, even when the British declared uh, the Balfour Declaration and declared their intent to transform Palestine uh, into a Jewish state, Palestine was still 85% non-Jewish. So the problem with Zionism is that how is it? I mean, let me ask you this question. How do you establish a Jewish state in a land that is mostly non-Jewish? Well, you have different options, right? Um, if you're of the belief that um, you know Zionists are um, going to bring all these benefits to the non-Jews, um, then you might believe that maybe the non-Jews would be okay. Um, they would they would accept political political subjugation 
if it meant economic benefits. And that was certainly one camp. And that's kind of, uh, that camp continues to this day. The Jared Kushner uh, plan, uh, the Peace to Prosperity plan, is a kind of the reincarnation of that idea that, right, if only we invest in, uh, enough uh, money, if only we, we get the Saudis and the, uh, and the, and the Emirates, the Emiratis to invest tens of billions of dollars in, in Palestine, then the, the West Bank and Gaza and Palestinians will accept political subjugation because, you know, of the benefits provided, uh, especially the financial benefits. Um, so that's one perspective. Um, there's a middle ground which says, you know, the Palestinians, you know, um, you know they're probably not going to accept political subjugation. Uh, but again, again, with the right incentives, we can make it work. And if we're just delicate and careful enough and, you know, we're polite and we're kind and we, we, we sort of treat them as really nice second-class citizens, like, th they'll be okay with it. Um, that's kind of like, the, you might say, the, the liberal Zionist approach. Um, but then you have, I would say, you know, the mainstream Zionist approach, which dominates Israeli politics today, and it has for the past decade and a half, is the more uh, conservative uh, 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 Zionist approach, which says, no, uh, the Palestinians have um, deep roots in the country. Uh, they have a strong national identity. Um, and they're just not going to subject, they're not willing to uh, accept second class citizenship in the case uh, of Israel proper. Uh, they're not willing to accept permanent occupation or apartheid in the case of the West Bank. And they're not willing to accept um, total siege and blockade and, 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 and basically imprisonment in the case of Gaza. Um, and so the only solution is the quote unquote iron wall, which is you have to beat them. Uh, into acceptance. You have to, uh, uh, you know, expose them to disproportionate violence. That was what uh, Ari uh, Ben Gurion, um, Israel's founding father, told Ariel Sharon in 1956 when he was entering Gaza to root out the Fedayeen. He said, you, you're going to need to use disproportionate violence. These people need to learn a lesson, and the only way to teach them uh, to accept Israeli domination and Jewish domination is through violence. And, and I would say that has been the primary, I would say, strategy um, that Israel and, and Zionists before them have, have embraced in order to get Palestinians to accept Zionism, to accept Jewish domination in all of Palestine. How do, how do you explain Christian Zionism, which is massive in the United States? So Christian Zionism is a very, very old phenomenon. In fact, it predates Jewish Zionism. I mean, people don't realize this. Uh, but many of the earliest Zionists in Europe, as well as the United States, were Christian. They were not Jewish. Um, and there were a few reasons for this. Um, in Europe, the Christian Zionists, first of all, they had these eschatological beliefs that at the end of days, the, there will be a Jewish ingathering in the Holy Land. And that will bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's this, and, and I'm not a, a theologian, so please don't ask me uh, to, to share details about that eschatological fantasy. But that is certainly what you, many European Christians, and also, by the way, what many American Christian Zionists today believe. So that, I would say, is an underlying uh, much of the support for Israel, is, is these fant uh, fantas fantastical uh, uh, eschatological beliefs about um, ultimately, essentially, Jews all burning in hell, uh, is kind of how I think they imagined it at the end of days, <laughs> Which is a little funny when you consider that, you know, they have so much support in Israel. Um, I mean, they're probably the number one allies of of the state of Israel. Um, in the United States, there's there's almost no American um, that supports Israel in the same way that Pat Robertson and all of these American evangelical Christians support Israel. I mean, it's a it's a blank check. It makes Joe Biden look like Israel's greatest critic, um, right? So. Um, so, so, so there's this eschatological uh, reason, but I think if you go back historically, um, the other reason you had so many Christian Zionists in Europe uh, was because of anti-Semitism. It's because th these Christians, uh, um, you know, basically believe that Jews were uh, they killed Jesus Christ, um, that you know they were filthy and and dirty um, and were a, a plague on, on Europe. And gosh, wouldn't it be great if we can get them all to leave? And all the and, and so Zionism was this very useful um, uh, strategy by many Christian Zionists. In fact, the, the guy um, who came up with the word anti-Semitism, who's credited with having come up with the word, um, I believe he's Hungarian. He was a Hungarian anti-Semite. Um, and in the late 1870s and 1880s, he coins this term anti-Semitism. Um, and he's basically of the belief that the way Hungary is going to achieve greatness 
um, is through this anti-Semitic Zionist program of pushing all the Jews out of Hungary um, and convincing them to move to Palestine. So there was actually quite a um, great ideological alignment uh, between these Christian uh, Zionists, um, who, who many of them were anti-Semites, um, and they're on the earliest Zionists, and there were and there were uh, you know alliances, and um, you know many of them were were in conversation with Theodor Herzl um, and and the Zionist uh, movement in Europe, um, and so that and you could just you could just carry that tradition to the present day, um, you know many. I would say of, uh, of the most anti-Semitic, the most vile anti-Semites in the U.S. are also some of the greatest Zionists. Again, based on this belief that you know, get the Zionists out of America, get the Zionists out of Europe, uh, uh, send them uh, uh, to Palestine, uh, where they're all, where they will all eventually, you know, burn in hell. Um, but th that's kind of a short, uh, I would say, a short version of the story of Christian Zionism. So just going back to what you're talking about earlier, it sounds as if you're saying Israel doesn't have a right to exist. Well, um, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, I think Israel, like any other country today, um, has a right to exist. Um, I think Egypt has a right to exist, even though uh, the Egyptian uh, military slaughtered a thousand Egyptians in Rabah Adawiyah and, and Nasser City in 2011, or excuse me, 2013. Right? I think Saudi Arabia has a right to exist, even though it ki has killed tens of thousands of Yemeni children over the past decade. Right, um, The United States has a right to exist just because it illegally, illegally invaded Iraq and occupied it for, for, for more than a decade. Right, So you know, just because a country is committing grotesque violence and maybe even carrying out a genocide, that doesn't mean it doesn't have the right to exist. Uh, what I would say is... Um, what I would say is it doesn't have the right to, to, to um, you know, be, uh, be practicing apartheid. It doesn't have a right to uh, treat Palestinians as second-class citizens. It doesn't have a right uh, to carry out genocidal wars against the Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, that's what it doesn't have a right to do. Um, but, but a right to exist, I mean, this is a propaganda point. This is what Israelis will try and tell you to make you convinced that the whole world is anti-Semitic. Uh, but, but again, like, when have you ever even heard that phrase used against other violent regimes, against other complete, like, North Korea? Have you ever heard someone say, North Korea doesn't have a right to exist? Well, North Korea may, may be the most oppressive country on earth, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have a right to exist. Like that, even that language that is used is language used by Israel's apologists and propagandists to make everyone think there's this kind of unrelenting campaign of anti-Semitism. But that is not a word or a phrase used by Israel's critics. What Israel does not have a right to do is impose apartheid and discriminate and, and carry out genocidal wars. That is what Israel does not have a right to do. In my view, there are at least three things that need to happen, uh, maybe four. Um, like, where do we go from here? So first of all, we need an immediate ceasefire. You just saw the reports yesterday. I believe it was a Save the Children report. Perhaps it was an Oxfam report. Um, more than 50% of people in North Gaza are starving to death. We're talking about actual starvation. Um, most people basically go a full day with no food in the north of Gaza. They are starving to death. Um, in South Gaza, the number is more like 38, 39% of people are starving to death. Um, they're all dehydrating as well. Um, so it, most of them are living in open air shelters. 1.8 or is it 1.9 million people are homeless now. Um, so, so we need a ceasefire so that we can get food and water to the people who are literally starving to death as you and I speak right now. So that's step one. I think, um, you know, step two is stop the violence in the West Bank. Uh, more than 1,000 Palestinians in the West Bank have been ethnically cleansed from their homes in just the past two months. Um, more than 220 Palestinians have been murdered in the past two months. Um, uh, where there is no uh, uh, Gaza, or where there is no Hamas operations, where there is no Hamas government. So uh, to pretend like this is like the problem here is Hamas is to ignore what the real problem is, uh, which is that it's the Israeli occupation and Israeli violence and Israeli apartheid, all of which create the conditions for Palestinian violence. Um, so, so, then, so then the second thing is we need, once we stop slaughtering Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and get them the needed uh, aid and food and water just to survive, then we need a political process. Now, what does the political process need to involve? Number one, Palestinians and Israelis need to be equal. They need to have equal seats at the table. We cannot return to the old Oslo framework in which Israel is both party to the agreement, but also the enforce, enforcer of the agreement, right? That was Oslo. It was Israel and Palestinians saying, you know what? Let's agree to divide up the water in the West Bank. Israel gets 80% and Palestinians get 20%. But oh, by the way, Israel actually is the one that makes the ultimate decision on how much water goes to which sides. And, and so Israel takes 90, 95% rather than 80. 
or in the case of um, the Hebron Accords of 1998, when Bibi Netanyahu said, I will only sign this stage of the Oslo process if I, and exclusively I, i.e. Israel, the Israeli military, gets to define an Israeli military facility. Well, if Israel is both party to an agreement that says basically Israel has to withdraw its military uh, from certain parts of the West Bank, but then it's Israel that gets to decide what is a military facility, well, then what, what results is a process in which the entire Jordan Valley is therefore defined as a military facility. And that's exactly what Israel did. It said, oh, by the way, um, I know we said we're going to withdraw from all these parts of the West Bank, but we also said that you know, we get to define what is a military facility and we're allowed to maintain those military facilities in certain parts, even though we said we withdraw from them, um, which actually means we won't withdraw from any of them because it's all a military facility. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in a world where Israel both um, is a party to the agreement, where it's also an enforcer of the agreement and also defines the rules of the engagements of the agreement, you're just back to Oslo, which is a, essentially a cover fire and a smokescreen for Israeli settlement expansion and, and Israeli occupation enterprise expansion. And that's what Oslo basically was, right? So, so we can't return to that framework. The only framework that will work is one in which Israel and the Palestinians are equal. And the only way to achieve that is having a neutral third party that applies real pressure on both sides, uh, to, to uh, basically Israel, right, to allow the Palestinians to have an equal seat at that at, at that negotiating table, and and the third and and the, and the final point I will make about these negotiations will be that they have to include all militant groups, all groups that are party to the conflict. And this was the fundamental, another fundamental flaw of the Oslo process, which was that the Oslo Accords were an agreement uh, between Israel and the PLO. The, the same PLO that had already renounced violence in 1988, five and a half years before the signing of the Accords. Now, let me ask you this. How did Israel expect to solve, quote-unquote, the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, without the groups that were, at the time, attacking Israel, right? In the years, in the five years prior to the signing of the Oslo Accords, from 88 to 93, the vast majority of the attacks that were carried out by Palestinians on Israeli military and civilian targets were from Hamas and Islamic Jihad. But they were totally excluded from the Oslo process. Right? So how is it that you expect to, to, to come to some kind of political solution that ends the violence without the groups causing the violence? So Oslo was, uh, was honestly like, it, 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 it had no hope. It had no chance of solving the problem because it didn't even include the people causing the violence in the first place. So you need a new political process, one in which Palestinians and, and Israelis have equal seats at the table, a one in which there's a, a neutral third party um, that, has, that applies real pressure to make sure that those two parties have equal seats at the table, and one in which includes all Palestinian groups, both armed groups and as well as civil society groups, as well as uh, Palestinians in exile. I'm not saying this is going to be easy to do, but I'm saying that's what you need in order to come to a, event, an eventual political uh, resolution to this conflict. But that's not going to happen because the Palestinians are the majority. Palestinians are a majority. Um, look, I think there are a lot of ideas on the table. There are these, you know, um, there, there, there's, you know, one idea that I found to be quite innovative is like, you know, basically what's it? It's like one country, two states, um, kind of where like basically all Palestinians and all Israelis can move and travel freely anywhere between Israel and Palestine. And that Palestinians will have citizenship in the Palestinian state, but can move and, um, you know, apply for citizenship in the Israeli state um, and vice versa. Um, and, and so that's an innovative idea um, that, uh, you know, ha has been repeated, I think, um, ha has gotten renewed attention in the past few weeks. Um, you know, there's a one-state idea. There's, you know, the, the classic two-state idea. The, the, it, I don't think the number of states or the exact configuration of those states actually is the real issue. The real issue is a commitment to uh, uh, human rights, is a commitment to making sure everyone, no matter what their religion is or what their ethnic or national identity is, has has human rights, um, has political rights, is able to vote for the government or the governments that control their lives, has a right to freedom of movement between the river and the sea, uh, has you know a, a right to hear uh, uh, to be um, tried in a civil court that does not have a 99.7% conviction rate, as is the case with the Palestinians currently in the West Bank, right? So you need to give people rights. 
and exactly the political configuration, let the Palestinians work that out. But ultimately, right now, what Palestinians and Israelis both need is security and human rights. Um, and, and whatever the framework is, um, whether it's one state or two states or some one country, two states or two countries, one state, or however you want to define it, I don't think that's the key issue. The key issue is human rights and security. Um, and until Israelis and Palestinians both have that, until Palestinians have real security and Palestinians have real human rights, um, there's no chance Israelis will ever have a, a security as well. Israel is this tiny country in the Middle East uh, and uh, the Muslims want to wipe it out. And so therefore they have to, they have to maintain this, this uh, Jewish uh, majority. Well, um, you know, Israel has uh, a very positive relationships with many Muslim countries, right? Um, it, um, <clears throat> as you just saw in 2002, it signed the Abraham Accords in which it basically signed normalization deals with Morocco and Sudan and the UAE and Bahrain. Um, it had already had, you know, diplomatic relations with uh, with Egypt and Jordan, um, as well as other Muslim countries around around the Muslim world. So, um, this idea that there's a conflict between Muslims and uh, the Muslim countries and Israel is a myth. Um, by the way, Israel has you know more than a million Muslim uh, citizens, right? So, there's no problem uh, with Muslims and Israel. The problem is dominating and and controlling the lives of millions of Palestinians. That's the problem, and we know already from the 2002 uh, 2000 Two, or was it 2001, the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, during which, which had the support of Saudi Arabia and every single, most every single Arab and Muslim country, that the Muslim and Arab worlds are open to peace. You just can't dominate the lives of millions of Palestinians and slaughter them whenever you want and impose an apartheid regime on them. That's what you can't do. That's the problem. Why aren't neighboring Arab countries taking in... Um the the uh, the Gazans. Well, there's only real one country that could. It's Egypt. Um, I'm not sure how Gazans would be able to get to any other Arab country, um, you know, without the explicit approval of the state of Israel, which obviously they don't have. But really, um, from the point of view of Egypt, there's a few issues. Number one, Abdel Fattah Sisi stated explicitly he doesn't want Palestinians to establish uh, bases of military operations from Egyptian soil from which they could then attack Israel. Um, and he's, I think he's, that's a very legitimate concern. Um, but of course, recall that he, he, Abdel Fattah Sisi himself imprisoned 60,000 members of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's no friend of the Palestinian people of Egypt, uh, of Gaza. Right, he has no desire uh, to. He, he's not some kind of like you know noble uh, Arab leader who's looking out for the Palestinians. He also is worried that if he lets he opens the border and lets Palestinians into into Egypt, which he should, to allow people who want to leave leave for humanitarian reasons. But he's worried that if he does that, the Egyptian people will accuse him of being complicit in a second Nakba, in a second ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. And he he knows that there's one issue that the Egyptian people uh, that that will kind of rile up the Egyptian street. Um, you know, he's, he's a brutal dictator, right? And, 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 and knows that he, he will face real uh, protests if he opens up that border and is essentially perceived to be complicit in the ethnic cleansing uh, of the Palestinian people of Gaza. So he doesn't want that either. Um, um, and it's not, it's, it, you know, so, so I think those would be the two main reasons. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that he obviously should open the, the, the border to allow um, anyone who wants to leave Gaza to leave Gaza. The worry, of course, is that they will not be allowed back, right? That they will become refugees and ultimately, long term, be in just as bad, if not worse, a position as they are today. Where do you see this going? Um, ultimately, Bibi Netanyahu is worried that um, if, he, uh, if the war ends, the Israeli public, 80% of whom hold him accountable for what happened on October 7th, he will... Um, he will uh, uh, have to pay the price, uh, and, and that, that price will be his own political survival. Um, Israelis will vote him out of power, and ultimately, if he's voted out of power, he will face uh, the bribery charges and corruption charges and breach of public trust charges that he's been facing for years now. Um, so I think um, if it were up to Netanyahu, this is a forever war. Israel will never leave Gaza. The war will, will go on forever. From if if he if he gets his way, now I imagine uh, there will be pressure on him to end the war because there'll be hundreds if thousands of Palestinians starving to death and and dehydrating, um and so eventually there will be uh, pressure applied on him. But expect, uh, I would expect this to get worse and the war to last longer before it gets better or before it ends. 
Okay, I know you. I know you have to go. So I'm gonna invite you back. But for now, Zachary, how can I follow you? You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my uh, my uh, handle is underscore Zach Foster. Uh, I run a newsletter called Palestine in Your Inbox, which you can subscribe to at palestinenexus.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.